The following podcast is safe for work. Unless you work as a bicycle courier. Situational awareness is cool. Hello and welcome to Leading Questions. I'm Evelyn. And I'm Hannah. And Hannah, whom did we talk to today? Today we talked to Professor Jody Freeman, who is a professor here at Harvard and who previously taught at UCLA, who spent time in the Obama White House. And one of the things I thought was most fun to learn about was she's established an environmental law clinic everywhere she's taught. Yeah, pretty much. It's, it seems like don't invite Professor Freeman over for dinner unless you want an environmental law clinic in your backyard. She's just such a powerhouse. There are worse things to have in your backyard, though. True, like a bee farm. Yes, that would be worse. Yeah. But I thought Professor Freeman gave us a really engaging and really frank conversation about her career and advice for our careers. This was just a lot of fun. Absolutely. Let's dive straight in. Professor Jody Freeman, you are currently the Archibald Cox Professor of Law here at Harvard Law School. You are a founding director of the Harvard Law School Environmental and Energy Law Program. You also served in the Obama White House as Counselor for Energy and Climate Change from 2009 to 2010, and also served as an independent consultant to the Bipartisan Commission after the Deepwater Horizon oil spill. You are a leading scholar of both administrative law and environmental law who has written extensively on climate change, energy policy, and executive authority, which gives us a lot to talk about today. Thank you for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you, guys. So let's go back to somewhere close to the beginning. Uh, You received your BA from Stanford University. Yes. Uh, What did you study during your undergraduate degree? Uh, I studied human biology, hum bio, as we Stanford people like to say. Um, which was a great program, really interdisciplinary, um, full of sciences, but also full of social science. Um, so th- I had a great time at Stanford. I loved it. I also played, uh, I also played varsity volleyball at Stanford. A little known, a little known fact. The weather much more conducive to that over there. I suppose. Well, it was indoor. Oh, excellent. yeah. It was. We played beach on the weekends, you know, and there were some, there was some imbibing of beer and things on the beach courts. Up at the frats. I can't believe I'm saying this sort of thing, but yes, up at the fraternity house, we would play beach volleyball on the weekends. But no, the the real deal, the NC2A, what used to be called the NC2A stuff, was yeah, indoor, indoor volleyball. And that obviously stands out as one of the key memories of your time during your undergraduate degree. Yeah, that was great. Yeah, it's really interesting. You then received an LLB from the University of Toronto before yes. coming to Harvard for your LM and SJD. Yes. Um, I am Canadian originally. So I was going to say, so yeah. how could Canada tear you back from the beach volleyball courts of Stanford? Yes. Well, it was actually the opposite. My family, I have a little bit of politics in my family, political background, and um, they never imagined that I would wind up in the United States. And so they urged me to come home, to come back to Canada. And they said, do one degree at home because you won't really know your political culture and your society very well as a grown-up. Um unless you do one of your degrees back. So I, I went back, um, and then I, I managed somehow to find my way back to Harvard. But uh, they, to this day, are a little amazed about this turn of events because, you know, Canadians are very proud of being Canadian, and they, they, they don't fully understand why one would go to the United States. So to this day, they sort of have this view that, you know, you're, you're kidding, right? You're not really going to stay there, even though I have a chair at Harvard. <laughs> I think they're coming around. It's still temporary. Yeah, everything's always temporary yeah. until it's not. But I'm deeply, I'm sort of at this point deeply American, but also I have this sort of deep Canadian roots, so I'm a combo, really. Why did you decide you wanted to go to law school? 
I think that I wanted to understand how power worked and how uh, institutions worked. I was curious about politics and I was curious about government. And I, like I say, I came from a family that was sort of had to do with that a little bit. And also in my family were some lawyers and it seemed to me the currency that seemed important, mm -hmm. you know, and I suppose that's just one of those preordained things. If you come from a family of engineers, then you, you are curious about engineering, but it just, uh, it seemed like it would be about all the issues that I found interesting. The other thing is I had, a, I had an early ambition to maybe be a sports medicine doctor of all mm -hmm. things because I was an athlete and I cared about all that. And I thought, well, maybe I could be a doctor. And then I um, ran into organic chemistry. <laughs> and uh, O-chem was the end of me. And, and I ended up in human biology instead of hardcore, the hardest core version of biology because... Uh, I don't think that that's where I was going to thrive. So that was it for the sports med. I also, you know, had this interest in making people better, right? I thought sports mm -hmm. medicine, but actually all that, it, it's not just about that. There's all this not nice stuff. So yeah, law school made sense. It does. And then <laughs> why academia in particular is a subset of that? That was not always a clear path. Um, I didn't have a big plan about that. I, I did go into a firm after I, I clerked and then I went into our equivalent of like the DC circuit in Canada. Mm -hmm. And then I, um, went to a big firm and, you know, it was actually very exciting and I liked it. I thought I could be good at it. It wasn't anything that, um, that didn't feel possible. It, it felt possible, but I didn't, um, I didn't look around and see a lot of joy uh, in those days, and it was a different time for women. I mean, it's it's still a little bit different for women, probably in practice, and there's certain challenges still, and certainly in the corporate boardroom, and that's all true. But it was still more uh, challenging in a way, and the women were sort of trying to fit in with this very male law firm culture, mm -hmm. at least in the big firms, and they didn't look especially happy at the time, mm -hmm. and. Um, but I liked the work. It was it was very interesting work, and I had this kind of revelation at one of these big um, negotiation sessions in the context of uh, litigation that I was like the very very newbie on. So I would follow the partner around, and we went into this negotiation, which was between beer companies, two big Canadian <laughs> beer powerhouses, Labatt's and Molson's. I remember this. They still exist, and this was a big money battle over something that I can't recall, and. The meeting turned really negative, and people were yelling at each other. They were shouting at each other in this negotiation and being really crude and rude and nasty. And after this negotiation, the partner took me out for lunch, and we had this really nice lunch, and he said, it doesn't get better than this. And I thought, no, maybe not. Maybe it can be better than that. Maybe right. it can be. So I, but parts of it I really, really like, the quality of the work and the mm -hmm. issues and stuff. I, I thought being a lawyer would be interesting, but I decided that I'd go back and had an opportunity to go to Harvard Law School and do graduate work, and I, I decided to go that path. And that led, I mean, that sort of led me to be interested in academics and be a professor, and I thought this environment would be a great environment, a great platform to do lots of different things, and so then I just went on the teaching market. Why the SJD in particular? I think I wanted to do, a, a PhD is something I th thought I'd like to do. I don't know that I had um, the sense that, I didn't have a good enough sense of the difference between going and doing a PhD, say in government or political science, mm -hmm. 
versus actually doing graduate work in law. I don't think I had a very refined sense of that. And in retrospect, I might have done something different, mm-hmm. either not done the full SJD or maybe done some another different PhD. As it, as it turned out, it worked out very well for me. And mm-hmm. um, so I don't want to question anything right. now because <laughs> things went really well. But I think the impression I'm trying to give you is this was not a grand, extremely mm-hmm. well worked out plan. You would not come to me and ask me, you know, tell us your plan Mm -hmm. um, as a kind of model because my model is not especially to be uh, have it all worked out in advance fair enough so you mentioned that you clerked at at the Ontario Court of Appeal Mm -hmm. um, and for a panel of judges that included a future Canadian Supreme Court Justice and the UN High Commissioner Louise Arbor yes what was clerking like uh, well, it was great. I mean, I, I'm a big fan of clerking. It's obviously different uh, time and a, and a different um, court, but I, I think similarities are, outweigh the differences between my experience and I think what you guys would face. Um, wonderful opportunity to get to know judges, work on issues very closely, work on your writing, see up close and personal appellate arguments, um, get a feel for how the judicial branch works. And I just happened to have a couple of these amazing judges who were not yet who they would become, you know, and um, for Louise Arbour, it was her first year as an appellate judge. And uh, and she actually said something to me like, and she's just fantastically charming and brilliant and um as a judge, and she she just said to me something on the order of, well, I, I, I'm not sure I know exactly what I'm doing. It's my first year, and we'll figure this out together kind of thing. And, and, and so that was a great experience. And um, uh, we had panels. We weren't assigned to just one judge, but I, I actually enjoyed that because over the course of the year, you would be with, a, you know, one for a while, and then you would move. And, and so I got great exposure. I, I really loved clerking. I'm, I, I recommend it. And then what did you do your doctorate on? What was the subject of your It thesis? was a combination of administrative law and environmental law. It was a little, a little mini Jody. Uh, you know, <laughs> um, I didn't understand it had the seeds in it um, of what I would do, but it was about collaborative approaches to governance. Really, it was the beginning of my thinking about public-private collaboration and how actors that are not in the government can influence the government. And it drew me into environmental law because it was a forum where that sort of stakeholder interest and petitioning of government and, you know, kind of activity to influence was really happening. And at the same time, there was a whole bunch of private activity on environmental issues going on um, quite separately. And, and that drew me in. So it wasn't that I came to environmental law or energy law uh, for itself, actually, I came to it through governance and government, which is which is explains why I'm sort of the hybrid scholar that I that I am. I think. So perhaps the first time you put this to work was 1995 to 2005. You were professor of law at UCLA. Yes. Where you co-founded the environmental law program. My salad days. And then upon joining the faculty here at Harvard, uh, you founded the environmental law and policy program. Right. What would prospective environmental lawyers do without you? Yes, I go around founding, <laughs> founding these programs. Um, I'm actually very proud of that. You know, it's funny. I, 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 I feel like I sort of am uh, sometimes toiling away in the dark and it's, it's not um, visible, but I have put an enormous amount of time and energy into building inside law schools the kind of uh, programs or institutional capacity to do work of relevance to the policy world. It really matters to me. I want law students to have a chance to work on issues that have real concrete implications, even when they're in law school, 
And so that means making sure you have an environmental law clinic or uh, opportunities to do research or to work on policy issues that are right now unfolding in the real world mm -hmm. and to interact with the stakeholders in that world, whether they're government agencies or you know private companies or the NGOs, the environmental groups. That kind of work as a complement to classroom work really matters to me. Mm -hmm. And I think law schools have an important role to play as themselves, as players in that space. That is, academic institutions that can tell it like it is, that do research that is straight up research about what's lawful and what isn't lawful, what's a good strategy, what isn't a good strategy, and they're not, you know, predecided and predetermined what, you know, when they approach those questions. And so I think law schools have an enormous role to play in contributing to public policy. So I want to build those. And I started doing it at UCLA, and they still have a, they have a great program. It's gone, it's gone and grown far beyond its beginnings. And I am really excited about our program here, too. Do you think that there's something in particular about energy and environment law that those were still corners left for you to establish, sort of this late into that doctrine existing as a separate subject? Well, what's so interesting is Harvard had nothing. You know, when I joined, I joined in the Elena Kagan era. I was among the first couple of people. John Manning, the current dean, was first, and I was second um, in terms of the folks she brought. I think I'm right about that. I'm going to have to phone Jack Goldsmith. I don't know what order that went in. But anyway, the three of us were the first three. And um, part of what the then Dean Kagan and I talked about was not just bringing administrative law, which everybody knew I would do, but also building something in environmental law, which Harvard lacked. And it was astonishing that Harvard Law School didn't already have mm -hmm. a leading program in this. And actually, the top 10 law schools, by and large, didn't. Mm -hmm. And I don't exactly understand why, because we already had fabulous students, and we had an environmental law um, review. The Harvard Environmental Law Review was already the best one, and the Environmental Law Society existed. So the students were being shortchanged because they didn't really have members of the faculty devoted to these fields. So I, I went about um, doing that. And I think it's it's been good for the law school and good for our students. But, you know, I also think it's good for the world. Mm -hmm. um, and we've grown leaps and bounds in the time I've been here. You know, we didn't have a clinic. Now we have a clinic. We didn't have a research program. Now we have a research program with an executive director and fellows doing really good policy work. And students get involved in both of those things, the clinic for clients and the research, not so much for clients, but just things we think are important to do. And and then we have all these classes. And Richard Lazarus came uh, and joined us. And I was thrilled about that. And so we've just sort of grown like gangbusters and you know, I'm very, I'm very proud about it. And just today, I will tell you, since you just happened to show up today, um, we have a new wonderful supportive gift of a couple of million dollars that was just uh, closed today. And these kinds of things, when you're at Harvard Law School, they make a huge difference when sort of angel donors come along and say, we like what you're doing and we think it's worth doing. We want to support you and the students. And that just happened today. So I'm I'm in a really good mood. Do you have a particular project or something that you will dedicate those resources to, or will they just go into the general? It's, it's going to go into growing this um, this research program and the fellows and the staff attorneys, so that we can really, you know, intervene with good product, good legal analysis, produce good research, kind of like a mini think tank, mm -hmm. but a think tank that has Harvard's quality and its uh, objectivity 
and you know our whole orientation is to be very pragmatic and to also be open to solutions in the private sector not just from government and now at this moment when the federal government sort of missing in action in the environment energy climate space it's especially important to have connections to and doing work for and with other stakeholders you know in the private sector and in the at the level of state and local government so we're sort of focusing on that and and this gift will be part of helping us grow and do that does that kind of pragmatic approach ever cause ire or tension with people who might be more idealistic or um, like greenies that want to strive for, you know, perfect outcomes? I can imagine that. And maybe secretly there are people running around <laughs> thinking I'm too pragmatic. Um, but I don't actually experience it day to day. I feel like everybody has their role to play. and We have lots of wonderful students who want to do um, things that may push the edges of the envelope and then we have others that want to sort of stay in the center of the fairway and um, that's all fine and that's all good. I mean I think you have to approach these issues from lots of different angles to be effective and my own path has been to approach things rather pragmatically. I sit on a corporate board. I sit on the board of an oil and gas company, which may be a f strange thing. So I've done these things that are a little bit unusual, but to me, they all make perfect sense. And I think it works for me and my strengths and my personality, but I really understand that other people are quite different. And I think that, um, I think making progress on this set of issues, energy, environment, climate, that it, it requires a, a full set of um, talents and you know different approaches but I don't myself encounter maybe people are too polite but I don't encounter sort of suspicion and hostility I think people know what I'm up to they they respect what I'm doing and you know I have pretty good um, I think my credibility is good I hope my credibility is good um, I mean it's the only thing you've got right your your integrity and your credibility so I, I work hard on that making sure that I'm intact um, so I think people who know me understand what I'm what I'm all about you won teaching awards when you were at UCLA, and mm. here at HLS, your classes are some of the hardest to get into. Um, what's your teaching philosophy? My teaching philosophy? Nobody has ever asked me that in all these years. Uh, my teaching philosophy is uh, pretty much you have to leave it all out on the floor. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't take it lightly or casually I think you, I go in the class and I give it a hundred percent energy and attention and focus I really want to make sure I'm successful at it I the, the philosophy is sort of um, engage the class in the enterprise and they will in turn engage me in the enterprise I always say to my students I just said this in closing administrative law today that um, you cannot be a good teacher alone you know, you, it doesn't work. Um, so the philosophy is all about doing this as a community, and I really take that seriously. So if, if my class isn't engaged, if people don't come prepared, if they don't want to jump in, then there must be something I'm not doing right. And, and I've gotten lucky so far. I love my HLS students. I mean, I always say this, that the best part of the job is my students. And I've gotten lucky. My classes seem to be very engaged and interested. Even even administrative law, which people think might be boring, which it's not, um, turns out you can get people pretty excited about it. So, do you remember your first day teaching? I do not remember my first day teaching. I remember my first couple of years teaching when I was, you know, young and spry and 
And I remember that I started with a cohort. I was back at UCLA where I started with a bunch of people around my age and stage. And we used to compare notes on the disasters that had happened that day in the classroom. And there were various funny things like my colleague Clyde Spillinger who wore a dry cleaning tag on his uh, suit jacket the entire class. And various people in the class were trying to motion to him about it, but he didn't know he was focused on his teaching and so he went through the whole class with it until he discovered it. Something as small as that to something more significant, like things that happened where we honestly thought, uh-oh, committed malpractice today, you know, got that wrong, and, and then would come out of the class either very high or very low, like that was the best class I ever taught, you know, mm-hmm. or that was the worst class I've ever taught, and then learning over time that the student reaction pretty much all the time was, that was okay. I did one super risky thing in my early years. I, um, I did two super risky things in the classroom. The first one was somebody's cell phone rang, and I said, give that to me. And the student, remarkably, handed it to me. And I took it, and I got on the phone, and I said, hello. I picked up the call, and I'm in class, and I said, hi. I said, oh, you want whatever the person's name was. You want Nick? And yeah, unfortunately, Nick's in class right now. Yeah, no, I'm really sorry. This is his professor. I'm just, I'm happy to take a message. But so I had this whole conversation, and never again did anybody's (laughs) phone ring in my class. But later on, I realized how risky that was, because a colleague said to me, Jody, you you can't do stuff like that. What if that had been an emergency? Mm -hmm. So I thought, whoops, okay, I got lucky. So never again have I taken someone's phone and picked up a call. Uh, And the other thing I did was um, I went into administrative law one day early on. This is the first couple of years. And I went down the uh, row, and five people in a row passed, tried to pass. And I was getting really discouraged. And I think I might have asked the sixth, and then it happened again. And I closed my book, and I walked out. Yeah, whoa. And I went up to my office, and I sat down, and I thought, "Uh uh-uh. Because you all don't realize for a young professor starting out, we get evaluated, Mm -hmm. and we get teaching evaluations. And if they're terrible, that's not good Mm -hmm. um, for a young person. And, um, you know, a few people, there's always a few people who don't like you very much. It just happens to be that way. But... If you do something like that and the whole class were to turn against you and write, you know. So I'm sitting in my office and I'm thinking, this is terrible. Uh-oh, uh-oh, what I do, what I do. But I was really, I was really, I felt it was disrespectful and I felt it was people not being serious. And I wasn't going to take it, you know. And so I, f- I was sitting in my office doing, and I suddenly got bing, bing, bing. I got one email after another apologizing. And it was not the people who passed. The rest of the class was apologizing for their class. And they took it to heart completely. Nobody held it against me. I walked into the classroom the next day, and the hands shot up. (laughs) Everybody was prepared. So those two things, neither of those two things worked out badly, but I now realize they they really, boy, they really could have. This is a weird segue, but um, (laughs) what is the best part of being an academic? (laughs) For me, this would be very individual. You know, you ask everybody. There are different kinds of academics. But for me, it's really the flexibility. Mm-hmm. Um, you can be a serious scholar and think and work and write about things really deeply, which is important. You know, not everything can be sorted out in a blog. Um, and so you can become an expert on things and, and, and publish and share that work, and that, I think, is very important. But you can also 
teach and I, I love teaching so that's a crucial part of being an academic but for me really it's the combination of that with the other things you can do with the platform so being able to do work go into the government come out of the government policy work even when you're not in the government have something to do with what's happening in the world of uh, public policy and then as it turns out for me also having a an opportunity to do something in the private sector sitting on a corporate board for me it's the combination of things mm -hmm. that is so great about being an academic so I'm a big fan of it because of its platform um, I, I can't I can't just do one thing I think and feel uh, fully satisfied but others others have very different views you know some people what they really want to do is write and publish and they're excellent at it and so the faculty sort of full of this mix of people doing very different uh, different things We'd love to ask you about your time in government. You were the deputy and counselor to the director of the White House Office of Energy and Climate Change. Can you just give us a brief sort of synopsis of what you were doing in that office, what your day-to-day -day work was like? So the president, when he was running, um, uh, Obama had actually made climate change a priority on the campaign. And, and in addition to healthcare, he talked a lot about um, doing something to address the problem of climate change. And so he established an office uh, of energy and climate change in the White House, which was the first time um, that had ever been created. And so it really was a job that encompassed both, you know, environment and energy together, which is, which is hard to do. Uh, and our, our role really was to help figure out how to get legislation adopted in Congress, which at the time seemed possible to... Um, cap greenhouse gas emissions and create a kind of trading scheme. So it was about a legislative solution to the problem of global warming, a domestic um, policy that would then feed into what was hoped to be a revived international process, which had gone relatively dormant in the George W. Bush administration. So there was a, a legislative focus um, and also in addition to working on greenhouse gases and climate change, a, a sort of suite of issues that go along with it, you know, renewable energy, um, uh, modernizing the electricity grid, and a variety of policies that all work together that are sort of transition to clean energy policies. Um, but in addition to focusing on a legislative solution, we were also working hard on using the tools in the executive branch that we already had. So using the statutes already on the books. And I came to be, I was a big advocate for that. Um, it didn't look like legislation was ultimately going to get through. We did get something through the House, but it was quite clear it was going to be near impossible to get it through the Senate, which is pretty interesting when the Democrats controlled both chambers. Um, it shows you that these issues are regional and not party, and it's tough. Um, so... I was very busy advocating for and working hard on using the statutes we already had. And, and um, so among the things I worked on, and for me, the biggest um, victory for me was using the Clean Air Act to adopt the fuel efficiency standards and work together with the two agencies, EPA and NHTSA, and uh, work together with California and the states. And it, it was a lot of complicated uh, legal work that was necessary to do that, a lot of strategic work. I always say it was like three-dimensional chess to sort of pull that off. And that was a way of addressing the climate change problem um, in the transportation sector, which produces such a large share of emissions, using the Clean Air Act. And then we started talking about what became, long after I left, the full-blown clean power plan for addressing the electricity sector. So we were working on this set of issues, trying to go sector by sector. 
uh, as a kind of backup to what do you do if you can't get legislation passed. And we made a lot of progress. And I, I, I really felt like in a fairly short time, I got to do some of the most exhilarating work I'll probably ever do and actually felt like we had some real success. Uh, we'll see now if it stands the test of time. You know, the, this administration is rolling things back, but we'll see if, if some of it survives. Having researched and studied all of these issues for so long before you went into government and then finding yourself inside government, was it pretty much like what you'd expect to be in the room working on those issues or was there was it very different? Were there any big surprises about uh, being in that role? I had no idea what it would be like. I mean, it's just a very different thing to just go. I, I, I was pretty relatively uh, mature, shall we say, going into the White House. There are a lot of people running around in their 20s and 30s and I was in my 40s and uh, you know, that was my first time in government. So that was a, a real change. And I am not a kind of um, pointy-headed, abstract academic. I'm pretty pragmatic, and I, I think that I'm pretty uh, concrete and realistic. And um, that was helpful because people would sometimes approach me as if I was going to say some dotty professorial thing when, in fact, I was actually trying to think of the strategic way to do something. Uh, so I had to overcome some of that, some of that resistance, the idea that if you come from a, an academic environment, you, you don't understand politics, and I had to overcome that. What was most surprising to me was the way I had to transform the normal analysis I do into something very short and very quick and easy to digest. So I'll never forget when I sent in my first you know, legal memo that was supposed to find its way up to the president on some set of issues that I now forget, and it came back to me, Rahm Emanuel, apparently, you need to, uh, he was the chief of staff at the time, you had to, it was eight bullets. It seemed like there was an eight bullet rule or something like that where you had to reduce this very complicated nuanced legal analysis into something somebody could read on their phone quickly. And I had to learn to write that way and to distill my thinking that way, which actually, once you do it, you realize what, it, what an amazingly useful exercise that is. So, and the other thing that was um, profound was the extent to which it was like drinking from a fire hydrant every day because you were always reacting to incoming. There was always something that happened in the world that changed what you had to do. There was always something that happened in the media. There was always an emergency. And if it wasn't an emergency, it would, there was something that was urgent. And there was never a moment of, well, let's take the time and really luxuriously think this through. And I realized that you're always on the back foot in reactive mode unless you really pay attention and find time for the strategic thinking. But it was exciting. It was fast. It was a bunch of really smart people around. I mean, that was really fun. And even some of my Harvard colleagues were in there at the same time. You know, Larry Summers was there. Cass Sunstein was there. Um, Dan Meltzer, uh, who we've now lost, uh, is there, was there. David Barron was there. I mean, you would phone up to talk to people, and you would invariably, you know, run across all your Harvard Law School colleagues. Um, but it was really, I would recommend it to anybody. I, I had a really wonderful time. And I actually feel like I got stuff done, which is not often what people say when they came out. You've alluded to this a couple of times. In 2012, you were elected as an outside director of ConocoPhillips, mm -hmm. uh, which is one of the largest energy companies in the world. And this was something you had alluded to earlier, the being an environmental law professor who's mm -hmm. on the board of an energy company. Right. Uh, how do you square that with your own work, but also what kind of perspective do you think that you're bringing because mm -hmm. of your background to organization I hazard to say that sees things differently well it's not just it, you know it's even it's even worse than you say it's not just that I'm an a, a, an environmental professor from Harvard Law School but I served in the Obama administration mm -hmm. and I worked on the single 
most important policy that helps to destroy demand for their product, mm -hmm. right? Which is fuel efficiency standards, uh, which you know affects demand for um, for gasoline. So you would imagine that the um, industry would not look at me in the most friendly way. Possibly they could take a view that I'm not the kind of person you maybe want to put on their board, and. Um, it's it was very interesting to me that this happened and that I was asked to do it and I I at first glance the, the person who called me up about it was Bill Riley who used to be mm -hmm. the administrator of EPA in the George H W Bush administration he is a lovely uh, smart debonair uh, guy and I just love him and he called me up. And he had been on the board for many, many years and played the role of providing a perspective from an environmental or sustainability mm -hmm. vantage point. And he, of course, is Republican. He served in a Republican administration, but he was the voice on these issues and he cares very passionately about these issues. And he called me and said, I have you know, a, a question for you because I'm gonna be stepping off the board and they would like this perspective. And so he said, don't say no right away. <laughs> because, you know, which I thought was interesting, and I and so I said, no, this is this is okay. I'm going to think about this, and I really had to think it through because in my world, you could imagine that some people would look at me differently, and um, at the same time, you can imagine in on the board um, that some people might think, well, you, you, I'm only there, you know, as a token of something mm -hmm. or being used for something, and um, so I sat down with the. CEO, who's still the CEO, Ryan Lance, and with um, the lead director, a terrific guy named Dick Auchinleck, who's just stepped off the board. And we had a really frank meeting, and then I went on to have more frank discussions with them. And it was basically, they said, we're very serious about this. We want this perspective. Um, we've, and we've had Bill Riley, so we, we know we have a track record of this. And um, I said, you know, if, if, if you're not serious, then there's no point for either of us, because mm -hmm. I don't want to waste your time, and, and I don't want to waste my time. And, and I really got the feeling that there was a very sincere interest in making sure that the company was thinking strategically about this whole set of issues that is so crucial to the industry. And, and that I think there's a recognition that if you're not thinking about these issues, about how policy drivers are affecting um, climate change and energy, uh, how, how this could affect the investment environment, how, how they could um, have to be aware of risks to their business and all this is in the interest of shareholders and if they're not thinking about it they could be behind the curve and I, I took it very seriously that they were um, they were not trying to just do something superficial and it turned out that I feel vindicated in that I think that's right I'm very proud of what ConocoPhillips has done so far I think you know this is a company that um, takes sustainability seriously and takes the whole host of ESG issues seriously um, and you know recently put out a greenhouse gas target um, so I feel like the company is really understands these issues and has built them into their own strategic thinking and for me it's been a wonderful experience because I now not only have I seen these issues from the government perspective and the academic perspective now I get to see them from a corporate board perspective and that's that's a 360 view mm -hmm. on on the world of energy and environment and I've learned a ton you know the business environment's really interesting corporate boards are really interesting places and the quality of the executives is really high the quality of the presentations is excellent so I I, I 
I have learned a lot, and I think I brought something of value. I hope I brought something of value to them, and we'll see. The relationship is is still unfolding, but I think it's a good fit um, so far. Something you've nodded at a couple of times has been the current administration's somewhat uh, different views on environmental policy Mm -hmm. uh, than the prior one. Shortly after the 2016 election, I actually went to a lunch talk you gave where your message was basically, all is not lost in energy policy. Um, There's good work still to be done in in government and you'd encourage people to still go in and, and have that experience. And it was quite inspirational at the time. How are you feeling now over a year later? Well, it's interesting because uh, I think I would still say that um, law students shouldn't just abandon the idea of going into the federal government. And first of all, there's a lot of work to do at state and local government, if that's of interest to you. But I I wouldn't just decide that there's nothing for you at uh, places like the Department of Justice or the agencies, because much of the lawyering work that you do, especially starting out as a young person, is the same. And you will get a bunch of skills that will be very useful to you. Um, And you'll be exposed to issues that you might not have been exposed to, and you may be exposed to arguments you might not have been exposed to. I mean, it's a I think there's a potential here for a tremendous learning experience. And, you know, you'll get a sense of what it's like to be in the government when an administration comes in that you may not fully agree with. That's important because civil servants, you know, including lawyers who work in the federal government, have to be prepared to see administrations come and go and to serve both as their clients. And I I just would be very disheartened if everybody concluded that there was nothing to get nothing of value and no benefit from going to government. I also think you can do some good for the government. You know, you can participate in discussions and debates where you might be able to temper views or add a perspective, and I think that's very valuable. So I still think I would say the same thing about being willing to go in. And in terms of what's happened, you know, my message early on was they've announced a lot of intentions on the campaign trail, and we'll have to wait and see what they really do. And then I sort of was handicapping all the things in my domain that could be rolled back, let's say, regulatory rollback and rescission. And I have to say that the administration announced basically every single thing they could possibly do that was on my list. But announcing policy change and accomplishing policy change are two different things because, as you guys know, there's a legal process you have to follow um, thanks to administrative law, uh, and it turns out to be harder than one thinks. And so I'm still waiting to see how much actually gets unraveled uh, versus how much of this is really just announcement and moving on. And, you know, I, I think that an administration has to defend itself in court when it changes its mind on various policies, and we'll see how that plays out. Everything's being litigated at the moment. So I'm not uh, willing to go to the place where some people have gone, which is to say this is all terrible and very pessimistic, at least in this space. You know, um, I'm, not, I'm not so sure where we will land at the end. So I'm, I'm retaining some of my optimism, although I fully understand that you know, the, the full suite of announcements is, is pretty uh, depressing for people like me who worked on these policies mm-hmm. and really believe in them and think that they're good not just for the environment but for the economy. You know, and to see them painted and pitched as job-killing, you know, excessive government stuff. I mean, I just don't believe that, and I don't think the data supports that, uh, and it's a little bit depressing to see them presented that way. That's very encouraging, and I know that a lot of people found your talk over a year ago also very encouraging, and I wanted to ask whether you see yourself as a mentor to students. 
Absolutely. You know, yes. I mean, sometimes students come and ask explicitly, you know, they want, but I think I have an experience of it that's much more diffuse, which is just what it means to stand up in front of a class of 80 or 90 or 100 people two hours a day mm -hmm. regularly. You're in a relationship with them and you're modeling something and you represent something and you hope they um, respect what you're doing and hope that they admire you in some way or other. You want to you want to present a good model um, for being a lawyer, for being a teacher, for being a citizen, for being a person. I mean, I, I take that very seriously. So I, in that sense, that rather diffuse sense of mentor, mentoring or modeling, I think I take very seriously. And, you know, I really, along with a lot of my other colleagues, we actually really try to be mentors. I mean, we have lots of different kinds of interactions with the students with supervising papers and having them ask about jobs and writing reference letters and you know we work really really hard to um, um, to actually I'm not sure if everybody knows this how hard we actually work to help get them jobs and and support you guys and we want to do it it's part of our job description but we actually take it really really seriously so in that sense of mentoring that is launching careers using my network to help my students land uh, somewhere. I'm very, uh, I'm very committed to that. You, you guys don't always realize, you know, we're, we're real human beings. We go home at night and think, you know, what did I do that was good today? And occasionally we get a lovely thank you or something, and, and you have no idea how much we're touched when somebody bothers to say something nice, you know, about what we did. We actually notice all this, and it warms the heart, and it's all... It's all true. So I, I love the mentoring part of what I do because I think it can make a real difference and you really touch people. And, you know, it's, it's nice to think that I now have thousands of students running around the world doing great stuff and I don't even know the half of it, mm -hmm. right? But I love the idea of that. Well, all listeners should take that as a call to send you emails with updates. Well, updates would be great, yes. <laughs> I would love updates, yeah. The other thing you do pretty regularly is write for a wide variety of publications and regularly do interviews at different outlets. Mm -hmm. um, what... Is it, what is appealing to you about this kind of work? What do you enjoy about that? I love the variety of writing for different audiences. So I, I, I took to writing op-eds because it bothered me that I'd never had an op-ed in the New York Times. At one point, <laughs> I made this decision, like, there's something wrong with that. I, I should do that. I realized At now what that point in your career does it become something that you, you know, should have done? I, don't, I can't remember. It was probably late. I probably came <laughs> to it too late, you know, sometime in my 30s. I can't remember my first op-ed. But I, I, and I realized not everybody thinks the New York Times is the pinnacle, but I I did, and I still do, and and so um, I said I'm going to do this. But you have to teach yourself how to write an op-ed. It's mm -hmm. not like regular legal writing. And then um, I did that a few times, and I realized, oh, I can do this. Um, and then I thought, well, I want to do something not in the New York Times. How about the how about the Wall Street Journal, an unlikely suspect, you know? So then I did that. So I in these in this world of newspapers or online publications like writing for Politico, for example, or Foreign Affairs Online. Mm -hmm. I love doing that because it's a shorter form, it's more accessible, um, and you can reach a much broader audience than just the scholarly community. And I really like that. And you know, op-eds are like 750 words or 900 words. The like longer form foreign affairs pieces or things you can put online can be longer, it can be a few thousand words. So you can sort of take your pick. Then there's write the blog, then there's the tweet. Um, I find the short, shortest short form not especially, not especially useful. I mean, it's good to get something out just to promote something or pass on a piece of information to media or something, but 
to get ideas across, right, mm -hmm. it's not very satisfying. So I really enjoyed this whole variety of ways of writing that isn't our traditional way, which is to publish in a law review or write a book or a brief, right? I right. like, um, and, and I've tried all those things. I wrote a Supreme Court brief, which is not my stock and trade. I'm not a litigator. But all of that, these experiences sort of taught me there's, there's, it's, it's wonderful to develop those skills to reach very, very different audiences. So you've worked in the highest levels of government and you've been in the room where it happens. Have you ever felt imposter syndrome being in those rooms? I have not suffered from imposter syndrome. I, I would say I have had a feeling of seriously, which is different. I have had a kind of, is this actually happening thought, um, which is kind of a great thought. It, it doesn't make me, you feel bad. It makes you feel good. Mm -hmm. But I've had that. That's a little bit of disbelief. Like, did this just happen? Did I get that phone call? Did, did, did this agreement take place? Did, and so um, did I have that exchange with that person? So mm -hmm. that kind of stuff, you know, makes me feel excited. But I don't particularly. And I tell my students, I know this is hard because it's either part of you or not part of you. It's sort of a psychological situation. It's an emotional reaction. But... I really wish people would not waste any time on that. It's such a waste of your time to sit and wonder if you're an imposter. It accomplishes nothing. It just keeps sowing self-doubt. I, I understand that it may be unavoidable, but I, it, it's such a shame if you can overcome it because it, 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 it wastes your energy on something where you could be using it to move forward and to actually take whatever you've been given, whatever platform, opportunity, job, and actually do something with it. And every second you spent on wondering how you got there is a second you're not spending moving forward. So I always tell my Elizabeth Warren story in every context when I can ever tell it, which is that Elizabeth Warren took me out to lunch when I got to Harvard Law School, didn't know each other. Um, she wasn't a senator then, she wasn't famous like she is now. She was a Harvard law professor like the rest of us. Um, and, but she took me out to lunch and she said, you know, Jody, you're here and a lot of people around here, um, around this university are wondering why they're here and wondering if they deserve it and wondering how they got here. And you should not spend one second on that. Just figure out what you want to do and do it. And I always tell this story because it was, first of all, I didn't ask for that advice. She just bestowed it upon me, for which I am grateful. Um, but it's like the best advice one could ever get because she basically gave permission to just use everything I had been given to do the kinds of things I thought were important and I thought that is exactly right you know let's go so I always tell my students to to think that way if they possibly can and not worry about all this stuff about how they got there you once said that if you were a book the title that would sum you up is everything in right now when did I say that? In an interview that you did for the, I think it's a Harvard magazine. Oh, God. What you guys dig up some It's linked on your website. Thing. Oh, is it? Okay. It is. That's So funny. this is a tip to, you can clean up your online. Okay, <laughs> thank you. Everything in right now, I said? You said everything in right now. So my question is, is that your approach to work-life balance, or how do you have fun outside of writing it's fuel efficiency sort standards? It's of my approach, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. It's hard to try to do everything. It's, there is a work-life balance issue. I'm quite tired. Nobody can see me on this podcast, but I'm sitting here sinking into my chair at the end of the semester after a long couple of weeks thinking, yeah, that was a lot. Um, but I don't know. I don't really know the other way. I, mm -hmm. Turns out I don't do things by half. I don't really know how to do a measured thing. I'm trying to learn it. As you get older, this is advice. As you get older, it's good if you can learn different speeds. 
uh, this is just my advice because I'm having to work on that. Um, I realize that I can't really do a project part way. Mm -hmm. And so, and that whether that project is teaching or skiing or, you know, being on a board or golfing or you, anything in the public and private realm, I just managed to want to do it 100%. So that has benefits, but it also has costs. You got to watch it. You know, I'm meditating. I have this app, Headspace. A lot of people have that yeah. app. You like that app? Yeah, it's great. It's great. Yeah, and you can have buddies on it, and you can. I've been doing, I've been bothering my buddies lately, which I don't think they actually appreciate in the end when you say you should be meditating. Yeah, you, accountability, right? I know, There's but something it's something a little weird. It's kind of that, inconsistent, right? right? You should like yeah. you should be anyway. I did that this morning, but um, you know, so if you can build in, in all seriousness, if you can build in this sort of little quiet time and take a step back, it's hard charging Harvard Law School students and hard charging alums everybody's very hard charging it's kind of nice if you can take a breath and get off your electronics right i'm a big fan of turning off the phone and stuff like that to to balance things out but yes everything right now i think probably still sums it up fortunately or unfortunately is that a theoretical fan of turning off your phone like how much time do you spend with your phone turned off well yeah that's a good question i should think about that um i do make a concerted effort actually at certain times of night, it's just got to go down. Mm -hmm. And I know it sounds ridiculous, but I make a very self-conscious effort sometimes when, let's say you could be going out, even just to a movie, or even just shopping, or even just with friends, or something very social, to just leave it at home. And it feels like an act of defiance, mm -hmm. you know, to do that, because we're never without these devices, and I think it's important, you know, just to go off and read a book sometime and turn the thing off so you can't be interrupted. So I know that sounds very old-fashioned, but... I think it's important. The brain, the brain gets kind of, right, yeah. mesmerized by these things, and I think your brain starts doing funny things. I don't know how we got on this topic. Is this part of this podcast? Yes, in a way, yeah. I think you should try to unplug and, and have actual conversations with people and actual social time with people face-to-face, -face. and I think you should go out into nature, and I think you should go out and do adventures and get away from this sort of electronic universe but note to listeners only after you finish this episode yes so, yes <laughs> so yes finish after this the podcast then, you can then turn the your phone, phone that's right <laughs> yeah so we've got our final set of leading questions that okay. we ask everyone to finish up i was supposed to prepare I so prepare. we'll just have to go with whatever okay. pops okay. into your head okay. first off what's one book that you've read that's had a big impact on you that you would recommend to people the book quiet mm. which many people <laughs> have heard of which is by susan cain mm -hmm which um, is about introversion and extroversion and how introverts have a different kind of leadership and skill set to offer and are often overlooked. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of relevant, actually, for HLS and this environment because we put such emphasis on calling on you and on performance and on the kind of hand-up volunteerism. And sometimes we can overlook the people who need to take a beat and think about it and take more time and then come up with a thoughtful answer but aren't immediately the most articulate right off the top and not always the ones willing to dive in. And I think when I read that book a few years ago, I can't remember exactly when, a few years ago, it really made me realize that there's a com there, there's, there are a whole bunch of people out there who don't fit the extrovert model who are hugely valuable to institutions, to communities, to law firms, to businesses, and to government and we ought to cultivate them too and also secretly because you know I'm secretly an introvert really but one would never 
probably know that. As in you derive energy from being alone from yes. from yourself? Yeah. Yes. And from going off and recharging some you know, the mm-hmm. definition, right, is extroverts recharge in the company of others and in their perform in performance and I do a ton of like all of my colleagues speaking and um, appearing and you know a, a lot of energy out and that's not where I get my recharge so I love this book because she was talking about very high performing introverts who behave like extroverts mm-hmm. which I thought was excellent what is your media diet day to day how do you get your news oh for a second there I misheard you and I thought you were asking what I eat every day which you is can tell great us that no, too, no, no, no. But no my media diet mm. we know you're active on Twitter not that active on Twitter. I'm in a dormant period right now. I better go tweet something. Um, <laughs> my media diet is, I have to say, going to sound to you very old and stodgy and elitist and liberal. Do you read dead tree versions of newspapers? I read actual paper versions wow. of the, yeah. I read the paper. Uh, I have the New York Times that I read. I sometimes read the Wall Street Journal more regularly than I certainly used to now that I'm in uh, a different role that I'm on the a board. Um, I think it's a uh, a good compliment to the New York Times. I read um, the New Yorker, or I listen to the New Yorker podcasts. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been listening to a lot of podcasts recently, so I'm off some of my other publications. Oh, I read. Oh, it's not media, so I'm not going to tell you that one. Um, oh, go on. Well, this is definitely not media, but I read Cooks Magazine. Mm-hmm. I love Cooks because they do these experiments, right, where they mm-hmm. make like the best chocolate chip cookie, and then they make that cookie. <laughs> 30 different ways, and then they tell you what the she best was, one was. Right, like slightly more crunchy and right, slightly less exactly. crunchy and more chewy and right, more ex- chocolate. And, and here's what you need to do precisely to right. produce each one. And not that I will make that cookie, but I want to know, mm-hmm. right? As sometimes I make their stuff. Anyway, Cook's Magazine I love. Dwell Magazine. Mm-hmm. That tells you a lot, but that's not media. Um, <laughs> I, get a, I have a clipping service, so I get um, sort of an online feed of trade press stuff, like mm-hmm. from Energy and Environment World. Um, so I get some media from there. I'm, I'm hesitating because I've stopped watching cable TV, so that's not part of my media diet. I find it just completely yeah. useless and not, and not interesting in any way and not insightful. I used to watch interview shows like, you know, the Washington Week in Review and the kind of politics junkie type media stuff. Um, I'm doing a little bit less of that nowadays. Yeah. yeah. Professor Lazarus said that you were singing the praises of social media as a way of getting news. Do you still use? No, he, 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 Lazarus. What I said to him was he needs to learn how to use Twitter. That is very different than singing the praises of social media. I was just, most of it was to try to get Professor Lazarus to follow me on Twitter, <laughs> which he still won't do. Um, I, I, I am not a fan, right, of the Twitter sphere. I think that people are wasting an awful lot of time. Mm-hmm. But again, I sound like I'm 150 years old. Also, um, I, I am, you know, I'm not on Facebook. So how about that? I think 87% of the adult population is on Facebook. I just don't, I think, like, the data says that when you use Facebook, it makes you miserable. So It does a little bit. Right? Yeah. Because people are posting... Uh, every beautiful thing they've ever done with every beautiful person they've ever known, (laughs) eating every beautiful thing they've ever eaten in the most beautiful location they've ever been in. Why would you want to look at that? Just in Cook's Magazine, you just want to look at the beautiful. (laughs) Compelling argument. What's one productivity hack or problem-solving technique that's helped you in your career that you can share? Okay, here it is. Say less, do less, wait longer. 
Let's do that again. Say less, do less, wait longer. The email comes in, it annoys you. You want to react to it. You don't. You wait longer. Amazingly, if you wait long enough, probably four more emails will come in that will fix that and you will not have to deal with that. Or you're sitting around in a meeting and everybody's saying something and you feel like you have to say something, but if you say less and you just hang on for a second, you might change your thought, let it marinate for a minute, it might prove unnecessary or it might be necessary still, but you will have sort of matured it and marinated it a little and it will come out a little differently. So that to me is a problem-solving, helpful triumvirate of things. That little troika, say less, do less, wait longer. I'm working on it. It's a very useful antidote to the, uh, to the lean-in culture as well, that in some ways just there's a balance, I guess. I have another. Can I give you another one? Yeah. Please. This is, I, I love this stuff. So I have another one, which is think of your energy like little droplets of blood, like droplets of crucial life source. And if you waste it on something, you don't get it back. And so every time something's happening that could drain you in one direction that you're not sure about, you know, you're not sure you should go in that direction, you shouldn't maybe spend your energy on this, think of it like droplets. And you have to decide where you're going to spend your droplets. And that is a kind of disciplining strategy for being sure you're really spending your energy where you want to spend it. It was really excellent advice. And in the spirit of taking it and saying less, we'll leave it there. Thank you, Professor Freeman, very much for your time today. Thank you. It was fun. It's pretty difficult to think of a worthy outro to an interview where you've just been counseled to say less and do less. Saying less in particular is tricky advice for me to take on board, as anyone see the struggle. who knows me well will know, but I thought this was just a fantastic interview. And Professor Freeman was very frank, and she was very engaging, and I thought her advice was... Hannah, preserve the life force. Right. Say less. Thanks, Professor. Thank you.